0: Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for FBC Keller Media in the iTunes Store. And now, here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Well, let's open our Bibles to the seventh chapter of the book of Joshua, and we're studying through the book of Joshua. And uh, we come to chapter 7 today, I'm going to read all 26 verses of Joshua chapter 7. You remember that the Hebrews are coming off a great victory in chapter 6. The Lord uh, caused the walls of Jericho to come tumbling down, flat to the ground. And so it was an easy victory at Jericho. But as is often the case it seems in life, dark days followed immediately after a great victory. And so let's read about those dark days. Joshua chapter seven verse one, but the sons of Israel acted unfaithfully in regard to the things under the ban. Now you remember God told them that he was gonna give the city of Jericho to them, but they were not to take for themselves any of the spoils of war. The uh, gold and silver was to be put in the treasury house of the Lord and everything else was to be killed and burned. But that's not what happened because some of them took some things that were in the band. Namely, Achan the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah from the tribe of Judah took some of the things under the band. Therefore, the anger of the Lord burned against the sons of Israel. Now, Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel, and said to them, go up and spy out in the land. So, the men went up and spied out Ai. They returned to Joshua and said to him, do not let all the people go up, only about two or three thousand men need to go up to Ai. Do not make all the people toil up there, for they are few. So about three thousand men from the people went up there, but they fled from the men of Ai. The men of Ai struck down about thirty-six of their men and pursued them from the gate as far as Shebaram and struck them down on the descent, so the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening, both he and the elders of Israel. And they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why did you bring this people over the Jordan only to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we had been willing to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say since Israel has turned their back before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it, and they will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? And so the Lord said to Joshua, rise up. Why is it that you've fallen on your face? Israel has sinned, and they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. And they have have taken some of the things under the ban, and have stolen and deceived. Moreover, they have also put them among their own things." Therefore, the sons of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies, for they have become accursed. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy the things under the band from your midst. Rise up, consecrate the people, and say, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus the Lord, the God of Israel, has said, There are things under the band in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you've removed the things under the band from your midst. In the morning then you shall come near by your tribes and it shall be that the tribe which the Lord takes by lot shall come near by families. The family which the Lord takes shall come near by households and the households which the Lord takes shall come near by man. It shall be that the one who is taken with the things under the man shall be burned with fire. He and all that belongs to him because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord and because he has committed a disgraceful thing in Israel." And so Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel near by tribes and the tribe of Judah was taken. He brought the family of Judah near and he took the family of the Zerites and he brought the family of the Zerites near man by man and Zabdi was taken. And he brought his household near man by man and Achan son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah from the tribe of Judah was taken. Then Joshua said to Achan, my son, I implore you, give glory to God and the God of Israel, give praise to him and tell me now what you've done. Do not hide it from me. So Achan answered Joshua and said, Truly I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful mantle from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver, a bar of gold, 50 shekels in weight, then I coveted them and I took them. Behold, they are concealed in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath it. So Joshua sent messengers and they ran to the tent. Behold, it was concealed in his tent with the silver underneath it. They took them from inside the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the sons of Israel. They poured them out before the Lord. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, the silver, the mantle, the bar of gold, his sons, his daughters, his donkey, his uh, oxen, his sheep, his tent, and all that belonged to him. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor. Joshua said, Why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day. And all Israel stoned them with stones, and they burned them with fire. After they'd stoned them with stones, they raised over him a great heap of stones that stands to this day. The Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger. Therefore, the name of that place has been called the Valley of Achor to this day. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Now, several times throughout this series, I have drawn your attention to the fact that we study the Old Testament for two fundamental reasons. The first is encouragement. Most of the book of Joshua thus far has been in that category. Chapter 1, be strong and courageous. We all need to hear that. We we saw how God sent uh, the captain of the host to lead his people. We all need to know that the Lord is with us. We saw how he broke down those walls that kept them from entering the promised land. And we all have things in our life that we need the Lord to do for us. And then there was the encouragement we saw last week that a woman as wicked as Rahab the harlot could be used by God for His glory. His grace extends even to the most wicked. But the second reason we study the Old Testament is to warn us to avoid the sins of others that we may not receive His judgment. And such is the message today here in Joshua 7. The story centers around a soldier named Achan, disobeyed God's clear commands and suffered the consequences." So, it's my prayer that we'll all learn from Achan's sin. There are four things I want us to learn. The first is sin's course. What I mean by that is sin's pattern. So, we study the Bible and as we look at our own experiences, we find that sin tends to take on repeating patterns. And the first thing we notice is this pattern of sin in God's dealing with Israel. And it goes something like this. God offers them a blessing. Instead of receiving that blessing through obedience and grace, they disobey God, and they rebel, and they sin. God sends warnings for them to repent. They stubbornly refuse, and so God sends judgment. And after the judgment, then there is repentance and confession, and finally there's restoration. And we see this pattern repeating itself over and over, don't we? We see it here with the Hebrew children. They call out to God when they're enslaved in Egypt, God rescue us. That's a blessing. He does so by sending Moses to lead them out into the wilderness. But while there, what do they do? They sin, they rose up to play. They had Aaron build them a golden calf to worship. They sinned and disobeyed. Although God had been warning them all the time not to worship those false gods. And he sent them warning after warning through Moses. And yet, they continued to complain and murmur, and so God sent judgment. The judgment was none of that generation, save for Joshua and Caleb, were allowed to enter into the Promised Land. And then He he raised up a new generation. He restored the nation, in other words. And as we saw, at first at least, that generation followed the Lord's commandments explicitly. But it didn't take very long until they started following to the same patterns of sin that their parents did. Generation after generation, this is how God dealt with Israel. One generation would rebel. They would uh, worship false idols. God would send prophets to warn them like Elijah, Jeremiah, Isaiah. They refused to believe. In fact, Scripture said they stopped their ears. They said, we don't want to hear those things. They would hire false prophets to tell them what they did want to hear. Namely, that God was pleased with them, that everything was going to be okay. And then God would send judgment sometimes in the form of defeat by their enemies, sometimes in captivity and ultimately erased their nation from the face of the earth for long periods of time. This is the the, the macro view of sin's patterns, the big picture. But when I speak of sin's course in Joshua 7, I'm asking us to zoom in the microscope a little bit to see the inner workings of sin in our own hearts. And you may think, well, this story happened thousands of years ago, what could it possibly have to say to modern people like us? Well, there's something you need to know. The people of Joshua's day were not fundamentally different than the people of Jesus' day, and the people of Jesus' day were not fundamentally different than the people of our own day. We see the same patterns of sin repeating over and over, and it's the pattern that is described in the New Testament book of James. Listen to James 1.13. James says, let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he's drawn away by his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin when it is finished, bringeth forth death. That's exactly what we see with this man Achan. He knew what God had said. God said, don't take anything, burn it all." Or or give the gold and silver to the priest. But he saw the gold and silver. In fact, he saw something else. First, he saw what the scripture describes as a mantle from Shinar. A Babylonian suit of clothing. It would be the equivalent today of uh, walking in and finding a $1,500 suit from Neiman Marcus. He wanted it instantly. And then he saw the gold bars and the silver bars. And he put two and two together and he thought, I've got to have this. He was enticed. He lusted. Now we typically think of lust only in the sexual realm, but lust is an untoward desire for that which does not belong to you. And so this is exactly what he wants. He was enticed. And really what's happening here is he saw something he thought was better than what God had provided. He gives evidence of the fact that he's dissatisfied with God's provision. Here's what I mean. Had This man missed a meal in the 40 years they'd been in the wilderness. No. Every morning he walked out and what's on the ground? Manna. All he had to do was pick it up and eat it. What about his clothes? Did he have to to shop? There are no shopping malls I take it out in the wilderness. No, the Bible says miraculously God caused their clothing not to wear out and their shoes not to show any wear and tear. But apparently he got tired of eating the same food every day. And he got tired of wearing the same suit of clothes every day. And so he became dissatisfied with what God had provided and he wants something new and different and better. And friends, this is exactly how sin works. Every act of adultery that I know anything about begins like this, where a person, one spouse or the other becomes dissatisfied with God's provision in their mate. And so they start looking outside of the marriage for fulfillment. And it ends ultimately in death. He says that lust conceives and becomes sin, that is the overt act, and then ultimately the overt act leads to death. Sin always has consequences. This is the pattern we see throughout Scripture. Go all the way back to the book of Genesis. Our very first parents, Adam and Eve, had one prohibition not to eat of that tree in the midst of the garden. They had everything they could possibly want. A perfect environment God had created for them, but they were dissatisfied with God's provision. They were enticed by the serpent to want more indifferent and better. And their lust gave way and became the overt act. And that overt act led to sin's curse, which is death. Another example of that is King David, of course. He's up on his bed At the time of year, the scripture says when kings went out to war, he'd become lazy, sitting on his laurels, his achievements. And he goes out after his nap, and he sees this beautiful woman bathing on the rooftop next door. He knows it's the wife of his good friend Uriah. But he lusts, and he begins to think how he could have her. And as king, he knew he could. And that lust ended up in overt sin, and that overt sin led to murder and led to God's judgment. Sin begets sin. This is what David himself wrote in Psalm 1 from personal experience. Blessed is man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, who does not stand in the path of sinners, who does not sit in the seat of scoffers. That is the negative progression of sin. It begins with a distant glance, an enticement, and you walk over there. Next thing you know, you're standing right in the middle of it, and before you know it, you've sat down and you are a leader in it. Now, always think of Abraham's nephew, Lot, at this point, who the Scripture said, set his tent towards Sodom. Now, he was a very successful farmer. His flocks were multiplying. God was blessing, but he came dissatisfied with God's provision. And he saw the bright lights of the big city from a distance, And he sets his tent so he can see the bright lights of the big city. And the next time we find Lot in the scripture, he's moved to town. And he's bought a house. And then the third time we see Lot, he's sitting in the gate of the city. He's become a leader of a place he never dreamed he would live. That's how sin is. It's subtle, but it's progressive in nature. Sin begets sin. But as the famous sermon tells us, there is a payday someday. The wages of sin is death. And that's our second point. It's sin's cost. Sin's cost. What did it cost Achan to take that suit of clothes and those bars of silver and gold? Well, the first thing it cost him was shame on a personal level. Here's what God told Joshua to do. Now, now remember, Joshua doesn't know what has happened, he just sends these spies up to the next village up the road. Remember, they've got to conquer all of these villages. So Jericho has been taken care of. So they send spies up the road to Ai. And the spies come back and say, look, Ai is just a small place. We don't need to bother the whole group of people. Just give us 3,000. We'll go up there and wipe them out and and we'll be back nothing flat. And Joshua unwisely believed that. Now that gives evidence that uh, Achan wasn't the only one at fault here. Because apparently what had happened is that the people had failed to learn the lesson of Jericho. The lesson of Jericho was... God is the one who wins the battle, not you. God didn't depend upon their creativity or their military scientists to win the battle of Jericho. Remember He said, look, just walk around the city 13 times silently, have the priest blow the horn, shout, and the walls will fall down. And that's what happened. That's how God gave them the victory so that He would get the glory. And so next thing you know they've got to fight another battle and they say, Lord, we'll take this one, right? This is a little group. We don't need you. We can handle this one on and on. Don't we do that? The Lord provides for us in a miraculous way. And rather than that spurring us on to depend on him more, we think we can handle the small things and we'll only call on the Lord when we need him. It's kind of like a farmer I heard about who bought a piece of property that was ragged and rugged, hadn't been farmed in years, grown up with thistles and thorns. And he worked tirelessly for several years, cleaned it up, plowed it, planted it, put his cattle on it, made the pastures productive, and it was his pride and joy. He was proud of his farm. A new preacher moved to town, and uh, he wanted to show off his farm, so he invites the preacher out to lunch one day and gives him the grand tour, takes him to the back 40, takes him to the lake he built, shows him all the livestock and how well they're doing. They come back, they're sitting on the front porch, and the farmer says, what do you think, pastor? Pastor? What do you think about my farm? He says, well, I think you're a blessed man. The Lord has truly blessed you. He's been gracious, and he's done a great thing on this farm. Well, he said, well, what about uh, those cattle? Well, aren't those nice? Yes, the Lord has blessed you with some beautiful cattle. Well, what about those horses out there trained so well? Yes, the Lord has blessed you with some wonderfully trained horses. And finally, in frustration, the farmer said, Preacher, you should have seen this place when the Lord had it on his own. And that's how a lot of people think about their salvation as somehow it's a cooperative effort. God does his part and I do my part and together look what we can do. No, salvation is all of the Lord. And and that was the message of Jericho that they have forgotten almost instantly, even Joshua. And so what happens? They go up there and they get whooped by this little group of people. Send them running back home And 36 of them were cut down and killed. And when the news gets back to Joshua, he's broken hearted. He's their leader. And he goes down on the dust and says, Lord why have you brought us over the river? We should have been content on the other side of the Jordan. We wouldn't have to fight these battles. You've brought us out here to kill us. God wasn't having any of that. He said, get up. Get up off the ground. Here's what happened. Someone in the camp has stolen. He has taken things that were prohibited in the ban. Now, it wasn't as if God didn't know who it was, but he's going to show him that he knows exactly who it is, and he says, Here's what you do. You, you call the people in by tribes. Remember, there's twelve tribes of Israel, and you, you cast lots, and when the lot fell to the tribe of Judah, that eliminated the vast majority of the people. But within those tribes you also have clans and families. And so Within that family. And then within that family you had individual households. And within that household you have individuals. And it finally came down to one man, the guilty party, Achan. And Joshua says to Achan, don't hide it any longer. What have you done? And he spilled his guts. He told the whole story. I saw the suit of clothes. I saw the precious metals. I took them. They're hidden in my tent. And Joshua sent some guy, said, go look for it. Sure enough, they found it hidden underneath his tent. They come back just as he said, and he's taken outside of the camp and stoned to death. His body is burned, and then they heap up rocks over him so that everybody that passes by will ask the question, what happened there? They're reminded of the high cost of sin. This is sin's cost. It begins with personal shame. But hear this, its effect almost always is upon other people. In this case, 36 other men lost their lives because of ache and sin. I hear people talking about um, victimless crimes and sins without consequence. There are no such things as victimless crimes and sin without consequence. And and here's the example. When we sin, it affects others, especially if you're part of a body of believers like this. All of us are infected because we're of the same body. It also breaks fellowship with God and with other believers. What did God say? I will not be with you until you take care of this sin problem. And then the ultimate cost of sin, of course, is hell. That's what Jesus meant when he talked about eternal separation. This is when the Bible says the wages of sin is death. It's talking about spiritual death, ultimately, in a literal hell. That's a high cost. And sin is very costly. But thirdly, there is a correction for sin. Sin's correction. Sin must be dealt with through radical means. And we have a term in medical science called radical surgery. You know what it means. It means to excise and to cut off the diseased organ completely and separate it from the rest of the body so that the disease does not spread. Jesus says this is how you have to deal with sin. Matthew chapter 5, verse 29, he says, If thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. For it is possible, profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that the whole body should be cast into hell. If thy right hand offend thee, cut it off and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. Now remember, Jesus used often very vivid physical language to speak of spiritual truths. And Jesus is not talking about mutilating your body. He's talking about sin. He's saying if you've got a problem with a sin, don't pet it, don't feed it, don't encourage it, cut it off, cast it from you, do nothing with it. I I heard a pastor years ago make a statement that I instantly agreed with. Hope I never forget it. He said that the problem so many in our churches have is that long ago we made peace with our sin. Here's what he means. That some of us have pet sins that we've tried to deal with at times, but it's difficult. And so over time and at some point we just take the attitude that it's not such a big deal. We'll just work around it. We'll plow around it in agricultural terms. We stop battling our sin. We make peace with it. And that is a far cry from the way Jesus says we're to do radical surgery on sin. So the way Joshua dealt with the cancer of sin in the camp may seem harsh to us. To stone a man to death. And to make an example of him. That seems harsh to our ears today. But it's exactly what God prescribed in the Old Covenant. Thanks be to God, we live today under a covenant of grace. But that, that does not mean that our sin doesn't have to be dealt with as radically as Achan's was. Because God has not changed. See, there, there's a misunderstanding out there that there's one God of the Old Testament and quite a different God in the New Testament. That somehow God underwent a softening and it's a kinder, gentler God after the blank page between the Old and New Testament. God has not changed. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Here's the thing about God. He hates sin all the time. He's not like us, who one day we're angry against sin and the next day we laugh at it. He's not like that at all. He's not fickle. And so that leads us, fourthly and finally, to talk about sin's covering. Sin's covering. I'm speaking, of course, of the atonement. That, by the way, is precisely the literal meaning of the word atone, a covering. It's what Christ covered through His death, burial, and resurrection, which is our sin-guilt. I'm speaking even more specifically of the concept of substitutionary atonement, that Jesus died in the place of sinners like me. So let's turn quickly to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, beginning of verse 6. Now you know that... Paul's letter to the Roman church is really a great theological treatise on the doctrine of justification by faith, how we can be made right with a holy God. And he first establishes the universal guilt of all men. Romans 1 says all men are without excuse because we have the general revelation of nature, God's power on display. We also have knowledge of God's law in our hearts. We're born with it. And then we have the written word of God. So uh, we're all guilty, says Romans 3.23. Stand guilty before the Lord. And then he comes to chapter 5 and he talks about this concept of substitutionary atonement. This is what he says, verse 6. For while we were helpless. So Paul has written a evangelistic tract. And he knows what all good evangelists know. You have to get them lost before you can get them saved, Right? And so he spends the first four chapters of Romans telling us the lostness of our condition. And then he says, for while we were helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's substitutionary atonement. One person dying in place of another. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so what would have happened back in Joshua 7, they take Achan outside of the camp and they're about to stone him to death. If some good person had have said, stop, I know this guy. He made a terrible mistake, but I know he's got to be punished. Let me be the one to be killed and let him go. Would you think that person was noble? Would you think that person loved Achan? Absolutely. Jesus says no greater love is any man than he lays down his life For his friends. But the problem with that, had it happened, which it did not, is that whoever raised their hand to take his place would have been just as big a sinner as Achan. Right? He was a sinner by choice, but he's also a sinner by nature. Adam's sin nature had been inherited, and that's why God had to send someone from heaven. And so he sent. The second person of the Trinity, his own dear son. Listen to what he says. Verse 10, for if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more have been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Verse 12, therefore just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. He's talking about the concept of imputation. We have at least three wonderful theological concepts in those few verses that I've read. The first is atonement, covering of sin, substitutionary atonement, that a righteous person died in place of an unrighteous person. That's what Jesus did at the cross. But the other concept is propitiation, which means satisfaction. Remember I said that God hates sin all the time? Because he's righteous. He has to punish sin. He can't pretend he didn't see it. That's a problem for us because all of us are sinners. And so Christ took the punishment that we deserved. As Paul says, while we were helpless at just the right time, Christ died for sinners. He satisfied the just requirements of the law. And then the third concept is imputation. See, all of us are guilty by virtue of our relationship with our first parent, Adam. But we can be forgiven by virtue of our relationship to the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's how that works. His righteousness is imputed to our account by His substitutionary atonement, and our sin is transferred to Christ's account on the cross. That's a wonderful, glorious truth, isn't it? That when we stand before the Lord one day, for all of us who put our faith and trust in Christ, He's not going to judge us based on, on our life which will surely fall short. He's going to judge us based on the righteousness of of His dear Son. That's why I love to tell you Romans 8.1 is my favorite verse in the Bible. There is therefore what? No condemnation, no ultimate judgment for those who are in Christ Jesus. See, His righteousness has been imputed to us. And when we stand before the Father... He's going to judge us based on the righteousness of the Son. And so do you know how secure you are in your salvation if you're born again? You're as secure as Jesus place in the Holy Trinity. So long as God the Father accepts God the Son and the Holy Trinity as a co-equal, you will never lose your salvation. And that means you will never lose your salvation because He will always accept His (coughs) dear Son. Now, the question is, how then should we live in light of that glorious truth that we don't have to be stoned to death or die on a cross, which we richly deserve, as much as Achan did, probably more, because Christ has taken our place. How should that affect our life? Well, some people say it doesn't. You know, you got a free ticket to heaven, let's live it up now. Nothing can happen to you. You're You're, you're bulletproof. And and that was the fear that a lot of people had in Paul's day. Paul was going around teaching grace, grace, grace. And they're saying, now wait a second, Paul, that's antinomianism. Antinomianism is a heresy which says, you know, live it up. And they said uh, that's against the law. That that, that if people believe that they could do whatever they want and just ask for forgiveness, this world's going to be chaos. People are going to be going around killing each other and whatever the case may be. And you know what, Paul, he asked a rhetorical question. He said, should we continue in sin that grace may increase? So, here's the question. We sin, we ask forgiveness, God forgives us, He gives us grace, grace is good. Someone might take from that, let's sin a lot more so we can get more grace. Paul said, should we continue in sin that grace may increase? You know what Paul said? In the Greek, which is the strongest negative phrase in the Greek language. And it means, may it never be unthinkable that we would live that way. Because when we're saved, it's not just that he gives us a ticket to heaven. It's that he sets us free from the power of sin. Not just the penalty of sin. The going to heaven is great. The penalty of sin is death and hell. Thank the Lord we're set free from that. But in this life, He sets us free from the power of sin. Remember what we said? Christ comes to the slave market of sin, where we're chained hand and foot, prisoner to our own sinfulness, and He turns the lock and sets us free. Not free to sin more, but free to what? Live in righteousness. To obey Him for the first time in our life. This is what Peter says in 1 Peter 2.24, speaking of Jesus, he said, who his own self bare our sins in his own body. That's what Jesus did on the cross, right? He who knew no sin became sin. Peter says, on the tree, which is a way of talking about the cross, that we, sinners, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes you are healed. And so here's the way it works. We're sinners, hopeless, helpless. Jesus dies in our place on the cross God sends someone in our lives to tell us the good news that Jesus died for sinners. The Holy Spirit causes us to be convicted of our own need of a Savior. Gives us the faith to believe. Grants us repentance. We turn to Jesus. We receive His gift of grace. We're born again He sets us free from the penalty of sin and the power of sin. He gives us the indwelling spirit so that we can make progress in sanctification so that we no longer live to sin. We live to righteousness. We live for the Lord. And what of you, friend? Are you living for righteousness? I didn't ask if you're a church member here. I didn't ask if you're a deacon. I'm asking you, are you living for righteousness? Do do you hate your sin or have you made peace with it? This is just how I am. No. If you're a Christian here today, you can never make peace with your sin because it is what breaks the sweet, intimate fellowship that you have with the Savior. And so, you sin and you confess it and you press on. You sin again, you confess it, you press on. Don't, don't, make peace with your sin. To the day you die, make war with your sin. Maybe you're lost here today. You don't know what it means to be saved. And, and it's just the way you are. You, you live in an unbroken pattern of sin. You don't have to. Jesus has made a way for you to be made right with your creator. Now, He's not made multiple ways. He's made one way. John 14, he says, I am the way the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. And I plead with you today, if you've never done so, call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. Give up on your way. Whatever way that is, it's the wrong way. It leads to to hell. And go through the small gate which is the person and work of Jesus Christ. Trust in what He did in your place through substitutionary atonement. Receive as a gift His forgiveness of sins and begin on that path Of sanctification that leads ultimately to heaven let's pray together Heavenly Father Lord I thank you for your word and I thank you for Joshua 7 Lord it's a hard word today not like the first few sermons in Joshua we left encouraged Lord it's a hard thing to hear about someone who was stoned to death but it reminds us of the high cost of sin Father, sometimes uh, we forget how much it cost you. It cost you, your dear son. And so Father, I pray that we would never make peace with our sin, that we would battle it to the day that we die. And Lord, I thank you that uh, for all who have called on the name of Jesus, we don't have to fear death or dying. We don't have to fear your wrath because Jesus has taken that punishment on the cross in his own body. He's died in our place. And so Lord, thank you for that. I pray if there's even one soul here today who does not know you, that your spirit would convict them of sin and judgment and righteousness today and lead them to a personal relationship with Christ. Father, I pray for Christian here today who's grown cold in their walk, who's begun to believe that their salvation and their sanctification depend upon them alone. Father, forgive us of that. Help us depend on you every day. Help us give you glory and be thankful for every provision you give us. And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.